Hello and welcome to Power Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most homegrown work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And this week we are here to talk about Shaking Hands 9.4 and Shaking Hands 9.5. Starting with Shaking Hands 9.4 from Lucy's perspective, Lucy is preparing to go out on patrol and kind of deciding what she should bring with her. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a cool like start to a very contemplative Lucy chapter. Um, like we spent last chapter hanging out with the other three Kenneteers and Ken uh, as they sort of got ready to meet up with her. And so it's it's cool that like as we shift back to this perspective of what she was doing alone, mm. she's sort of wrestling with this very like deeply personal issue. Yeah, it is such an interesting uh start to this chapter i mean we spoke a lot in the early arcs how lucy seemed to be kind of building a natural propensity for violence and then that kind of paid off with john's resolution to the alexander situation obviously Mm. um and yeah that experience with john has really challenged that and she's now kind of more carefully considering what options she wants available to her and kind of thinking out should i just make it that i don't have many violent options is that what i want to do and i'm i i don't think there was a an active ramification to this in 9.5 really but i'd be interested to see if there's a moment or moments that come up where you know her choosing not to take a knife has some kind of specific consequence either positive or negative and we'll see about that yeah i mean there's one small one based on the watch that she chooses to take later in the chapter yes um but that's sort of a mixed success because she still ends up getting headlocked but um, true yeah it's interesting because it's not about like getting rid of violence entirely. Like she's not turning into a peacenik or anything. It's it's mm. like she just sort of is starting to make that realization that so much of her arsenal is like sort of violence coded. It's it's associated with violence imagery. Yeah, and and yeah, as you said with with the Alexander stuff in mind, she's like it's almost like she's trying to find a balance now. Not uh, like you know, not totally changing her pace, but sort of like. She's having to take this step back now and realize, you know, there are consequences uh, for getting really confront, yeah, confrontational sometimes. And she's not all like maybe there's not always the way to go. I suppose, mm. especially yeah. with like uh, John's dog tags mm. being something that she does decide to take, even though that's sort of a connection she has had severed from her. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Um... Yeah, I, I just intentional Lucy questioning what she wants to be is is stuff that I'm always going to enjoy. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean this chapter explores so much of it because, um, like, I think the reason we've all loved Lucy so much is because she's always been so self assured in like the righteousness of her causes, and she's usually right. Mm. Um, and so this is more now she's having to take a step back and like she's yeah, she's not changing any of her beliefs or anything. Like she still knows Alexander was wrong. She's just trying to figure out is there a way to do this where someone doesn't get killed? Like, can you do it without the fangs? Um I mean, yeah, basically because she's a good person. She she feels regret and not being that person would basically be her turning into Alexander in a way. Mm. Um, like even if she's fighting for the right causes, being that heartless and not regretting something like this is losing something a little bit. And I'm, it's really cool to see her trying to strike that balance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
it is, isn't it? It's it's great. It's great stuff. I, yeah. Yeah. And it's why I like the the weapon ring so much is what she chooses to take. Because, mm. like, a knife, it, that's a very sort of, you know, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail type thing. Like, you're going to be stabbing and cutting stuff with a knife when it comes to combat. Mm. The weapon ring's so versatile. Like, it, it, it's all sorts of different weapons, but she can sort of try to choose or make weapons that let her have control. Like, back in that fight with, with Guillermet in, like, Arc 4, the flashback one, the duel, Mm. It was like all about making different things with the weapon ring. It's that sort of versatility. She can choose how she wants to fight with it. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It is a, it's versatile. It's got a bit of versatility to it. Yeah. Well, it's choosing, it allows you to choose a weapon for the situation, which feels like you've got, yeah, more control over not taking things too far. Yeah, that's fair. It's not necessarily, you know, picking an, I guess a knife can also kind of be a tool, but. You're right, where Lucy could yeah. choose a gun or she could choose a, a club, you know what I mean? Like, there's obviously a level of escalation that she can choose a little bit more actively. Yeah, yeah, weapons that are more defensive, like a you know big sword or something. But then I guess the flip side to that is she also, in a situation which might not need escalation, has the option to choose something that would escalate, like making a, a gun. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I, I guess it comes down to how much Lucy trusts herself, and I think the answer is hopefully uh, that you know she she does or she trusts that she doesn't want to be that person anymore. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean it's also great as well because like this whole chapter is Lucy struggling with this huge indecision point now. Like, like you know she she spends most of this chapter like agonizing over stuff like this knife, and it's like what is my role in the group? Like where do I fit in? And mm. That's been Avery, like, the whole story until just recently. Avery was suddenly, like, you know, with Fernanda, she sort of found that role of, you know, her departures and arrivals stuff. Um, so there's this fun little m mirroring to the journeys of Avery and, and Lucy and as Avery sort of found herself and her confidence in how she wants to handle things, Lucy has done all that now and is being forced to take a step back and readjust hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, there's a part of this chapter, there's a part in this chapter that I really liked, which is, uh, when there's this callback to how Lucy is great at eavesdropping and Jazz says, Aunt Heather discovered that the hard way. I just think it's great thinking back to this and being like, oh yeah, Lucy has always been a little eavesdropper, hasn't she? <laughs> the eavesdropper's earring really is the perfect extension of that. Yeah, like, uh, I reread the first four arcs quite a, quite a while back, but just after the implement ritual. And it was kind of crazy how much that was there. I mean, and there were like a hundred things like this, like so many sort of things that felt like, not that they were being foreshadowed, but that they were being set up, like, you know, seeds being planted. And this was one, like, there's a bunch of other examples. Like, Lucy has always been somebody who has her ears open. Mm, yeah. Um, and and what, what's great about how she does it is she, like, continues to be quite open about it. Like, she's never being a sneaky listener. No, she's always like, oh, and I heard this. Let's talk about it. She, it's never, I mean, I, I, until the end of this next chapter, I guess, there hasn't been a situation where she's overheard something and has had to keep it somewhat a secret. Yeah, uh, uh, arguably there was, she was eavesdropping in the bad way on the interrogations that Ray was doing before. Oh, he that's got true. To them. Yes, that was never kind of um, brought up. You're right. But. Well, yeah, like nine times out of ten, like Lucy uses it to bring information into the light, not to 
fucking one-up people and some trixiness bullshit. Mm. Um, yeah, like she was even telling people at the BHI what it could do from memory. Like it was in that same scene she was telling Zach and uh, whatever Zach's shithead friend's name was, Sal or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and then obviously, yeah, as you said, at the end of the next chapter, she's maybe a bit sneaky about it, but also it kind of sounds like it was a fair response. <laughs> so I've got to give you a pass for that one. Yeah. But yeah, also in that same conversation, that's where Jazz is talking about um, her job interview. So yay, Avery's dad? Mm. Question mark? Yeah. Connecting the parents has been just as powerful as connecting the children, it seems. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's... It's such a shitty victory if Jazz gets this because of that connection, because she deserved it anyway. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, it's a victory. I will one hundred percent support her getting because she needs this fucking job. But um, yeah, I uh, yeah, I don't know. The whole thing with Avery's dad, and I felt like, can we talk about the girls? Kind of set it up as something that you're a bit like, uh, it's a bit gross, but we need it. Mm. And now Jazz has to pull an all nighter like right before <laughs> the interview. Yeah, it's just such bullshit. Like, I mean, that's that's the state of the of the economy, you know, around exactly. Kenneth. That's yeah. really what we're getting here, right? Is like, good people even who have jobs are struggling. Yeah, well, she's just sort of disadvantaged because of her current thing. It's going to yeah. affect her ability to move somewhere better. Yeah, um, like she's not going to get the same fair go someone just out of nursing school might get who's living with their parents or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just kind of adding on to the inequality that is kind of running throughout this story, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the pressure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Lucy realizes that she's going to be late for the patrol, and so she decides to try something. Glamour transformation, multi-fox form, go! It's so good. Great transformation, Lucy. <laughs> Loved it. It's such a, like, I mean, not only is it fucking cool, but the scene around it is so amazingly visual. Yeah. like. Lucy sort of alone in like in the, in the moon is shining overhead and she's sort of like running and then she, she, her first attempt like fails so she sort of like trips up but then keeps running and then as she's running turns into the first fox again mm. um like you could just sort of picture how this would be shot and the sort of like gentle but fast-paced music that's going on like ah I just yeah one of those fantastic wild bow scenes that jumps right out of the page and visually into your head mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's be it it really does, um, and it's such a fun extension of the other times we've seen her use glamour in such a different way to something Verona would do. Uh, you know, we saw her do things like the sunlight transformation, and this is just a extension of that. She she doesn't transform into other things; she transforms into like amalgamations of things. So one fox she can't really do, but five foxes, perfect, wonderful. Yeah, well, I think at one point she sort of says that she's also like a shadowy version of herself as well, and then she splits that off into like more foxes. But I mean, yeah, it's just like, how am I still shocked and surprised at the shit some people can pull with glamour? Like, I mean, I guess it's like Lizzie says, if it lets you be a cloud of smoke, like why the fuck not a group of foxes? But mm. that just hadn't occurred to me, and I was like, this is so cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very cool especially as well like I, I feel like all of our new others in Kennet, a big trend in them more than the original batch is like less human normative forms of like consciousness yeah or whatever yeah like, like you know we've got all these people with really different 
concepts of sapience and sentience uh, in the town now. And this is like Lucy experimenting with putting herself in that a little bit. Like she's turning mm-hmm. herself into somebody with five different perspectives. It's just sort of starting to touch on those ideas some more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It's, again, different perspectives, non-human perspectives, get into some other kind of frames of reference and explore those. I mean, like, uh, we had kind of thought that I guess the main way of doing that would be through Verona and her tendency towards otherness, but we get a bit of it through <laughs> Lucy here too. <laughs> um, I also really liked how the fact that she splits into five foxes almost allows her to kind of demonstrate what the things that are on her mind are, right? Because when she gets to the other group, she kind of has these five foxes effectively act out five of the major things playing on her mind, right? One is worried about John, one's keeping an eye out, one's kind of being cuddly with Snowdrop, one's interacting with Guillaume. She's like dividing her mental energy very linearly or very like clearly with these yeah. foxes between the things that are on her mind, which I thought was great. Yeah, it's it's a really fun idea that like when you split your mind into five shards, then you can let each one deal with one of the five big things that's like affecting you. It's it's a really cool observation. Mm-hmm. Um and the way it lets yeah, lets her do all of them at once. Um it's a great follow on from the sort of stuff that the start of the chapter introduced, which is this idea of Lucy's trying to figure out who she is. And part of that is splitting yourself into five parts of yourself to see what they do, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she, I mean, like as we're exploring Lucy so much, uh, she also sort of dives into trying to figure out like why she picked the Fox or she sort of, you know, recounts to herself, like, this is why I picked this. Like, you know, yes. this is that part of who I am and who I was. Yeah. Um, cause the Fox, like the Fox is I, like this, you know, when you see her in the side or whatever, she has like a Fox mask on, right? Like it's a, it's a sort of irremovable part of her identity now. So it's, it's something to consider if we're asking who is Lucy, because that part isn't going away. Mm. Uh, and she talks about how originally she was actually going to be a hedgehog. Um, and, she claims she rejected it because like they're too reactive like they don't hunt prey they 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 just act defensively mm. um but I, I think another important detail here is as you said the one of the first things she does is like she goes and she like hugs snowdrop and avery and verona and it's like i don't think hedgehog form lucy gets to do that mm. yeah like a hedgehog a hedgehog doesn't just reactively fight off people hedgehogs also push other people who want to hug them away because it's spiky. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it would be an apt choice for sure. But I am, uh, it's interesting. Both obviously fit quite well, but Lucy made an intentional choice to define who she wanted to be a bit more, and I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Although she is collecting rings, so maybe she should have been ahead. <laughs> <sighs> Very silly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's good i mean it's 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 giving lucy a chance to i mean it's showing that lucy has always kind of i guess had a bit of trains of thought about who she wants to be and making those active decisions which is great yeah well because she thinks like she didn't have that one that instantly clicked with her like verona and, and a little bit avery did like she yeah she was sort of struggling like to define how she wanted to act more than the others which is interesting because we've always seen her as probably the most self-assured one. And like, even back in arcs one and two, she was the one focused on the mission. Mm. So we never really focused that much on how indecisive she was in some of these ways. And, and she's now finally really tackling that. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. Also, Gilmay mentions that she likes the nettle wisp when he meets her. Like, she's keeping the little nettle wisp effect on her arm because she likes it. Mm. What's that about? Um, yeah, a bit worrying, I guess. Uh, is it like a cool battle scar? Like, what does she like about it? Yeah, what what was it about the experience she had with the nettle wisp that was like, oh, that worked well, you know? I mean, I guess there was a moment at the BHI where it warned them that Bristow had seen the letter that they were going to send, which kind of kicked some stuff off, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that much about it where I was like, yes, perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's just concerning with like Marissica still out there as something we might have to deal with that Lucy's apparently hanging on to mm. what feels like a potential trap. Or uh, the Nettle Wisp is hanging on to her somehow. Who knows? Well, Gilmay definitely implies she's letting it at the very least. Yes. But um, you, with the Fae, you can never trust what they're implying to you, right? Yeah, fair. Um, so yeah, the gang, uh, reunites, heads out on patrol as Lucy is kind of still reflecting on her role in the group. And they talk to John about the idea of the Carmine Ascension. <laughs> um, one of the things we, we sort of touch on again here as well is that John gets like upgrades from every person he kills. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I'd forgotten how literal that was in that it's like this sort of thematic RPG experience point thing he gets where like because he killed alexander he gets better eyesight now mm. um I, I find this this thread really interesting because we're obviously going to get to these others who we fight in the next chapter and we'll t- probably talk about this more there but like we've, we've heard a bunch about how dogs of war they start out as quite like shells of people without that much identity and they sort of crystallize into who they are from killing other people mm. and it's like it, that just raises such interesting stuff because it's like you you see these these people who are trying to invade the town and you compare them it's like John only grew yeah. into the crystallized like whole person he is now because he killed other people yeah um Liz is kind of the same mm-hmm. Musette is similarish like it's uh, yeah I guess it, it's like this chapter is already starting to raise those questions in your head of how do we handle others yeah who, like literally need to prey on other people. What, what to exist yeah what good way is there for them to be integrated into a society without hunting people right i mean like the ghouls yeah. are another great example they're so yeah, yeah. based around it, feeding on other people and if they can't i mean they just degenerate and die right like what do you do in that situation how do you resolve those at odds ideas you know i don't think well, you necessarily can i suppose for the ghouls they can have freshly dead bodies, so you True. could just like feed, you know, pit them from the morgue or something. I mean, that's better. It's obviously not perfect, still. <laughs> yeah. Um. Whereas, like, yeah, something like John. It's sort of like, okay, John is where he is now. We need to treat him as a person, kind of the same as Liz. But if you have an early dog of war, what can you do with something that is kind of mindless and violent? And ha- but like the way to grow it into something better is apparently to let it kill a bunch of people. Like, ha- yeah, how do you handle something like that? No, yeah, well, I guess we'll talk about it next chapter as well. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, yeah, I guess we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so John is 100% accepting the role of Carmine Dog. Like, he basically says, yes, I'm going yeah. to do it regardless. Uh, and he's expecting to be challenged, but we don't know necessarily that he will be. 
does it feel possible that John is behind this and kind of just like going to take it and then not get challenged by anyone because he was behind it? It doesn't. John feels the most trustworthy out of all of the Kenneth others, but we don't know for sure. Uh, sorry, I've just remembered. Didn't they? Didn't the culprits actually talk about taking him out in Can We Talk About the Girls? Did they? I don't remember now. Maybe you're I right. I think they did. John is like guaranteed it's safe, right? He yeah. just seems so yeah. great. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Call me forsworn, but John's safe. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this whole segment is kind of Wildbow closing off a lot of the theorizing. It feels like a bunch of us have been doing for like arcs and arcs now. Like, mm. you know, what what could you do if you know what if John did this? What if John did that? Like, it was sort of like when we had that interrogation uh, last arc, and it was sort of like immediately established that removing your memory so that you could lie was something that would be punished. It was like yeah. Wabo sort of saying, okay, yeah, yeah ruling I'm, that I'm out. closing yeah. off this part. Close yeah. that loop. Um, so there were like a lot of those things like, oh, can John do this? Can John do that? No, he can't. Um, and the, yeah, so we, we're basically, he will be on the chopping block unless the girls can do something before that. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It it seems like John's uh, almost certainly not long for this world. Same with Guillaume, right? Um, it's interesting. John mentions, he says, it's not a job or duty I want, but the other three judges have said they'll try to make it palatable, which, uh, again, yeah. kind of worrying, right? Like, hmm. Well, because then he immediately changes the subject when they ask for more details, which is just like, oh, you can't do that. Like, what is so unpalatable about the job for John? Is it? Yeah. What What could that be? Because I guess, like, I like, I I would have just assumed it was like, oh, he's not the sort of person to want to judge other people and to hand out punishments, particularly of the violent kind. Um, like he doesn't enjoy doing things like putting down Yolda or Alexander. He just sort of knows that they're necessary. Mm. But the fact that he changes the subject like this, I was like, okay, so is there something else that we're not getting? Mm. It feels like the story's keeping a secret from us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It it does sound like... Because the fact that John changes the subject is so suspicious, right? It's just... He clearly knows that there's something about that that the Kenneteers won't like, and so he's not saying it. Yeah. Yeah, and I just... I can't... It's not clicking for me what that could be. It's a fun little secret while Bo's keeping to himself for now. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see. Um, also, Avery mentions uh, she wants to do her familiar ritual on a path, and knowing <laughs> that she's about to go to the train station path made me a bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess look, if you're going to do a destination wedding, it's nice of you to do it near where everyone else lives, like Miss and yeah, the true. Wolf. It's they, like, accessible get, for it, yeah. all your friends. Like, it's it's not too far of a destination. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it seems insane. Like, <laughs> hopefully she's, this isn't what's going to happen, but I kind of get the feeling that it is, and I'm terrified for it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, kind of regardless of what path she does it on, because it's... Frankly, just about any path, I'm going to be like, this is a wild decision to go here. Mm -hmm. um, it, like the, I think I, I think we knew uh, just the way this story has been going that it wouldn't be like a very by the book familiar ritual. Mm -hmm. But it's really fun to sort of think about how doing this sort of ritual that is built on formality and connection to the world, like through that 
repetition and that pattern that's been established, like how would it be affected by doing it in a path? Mm. Like it feels like it will, it, it feels like it'll pull Avery further into being a finder, like someone in the paths. Like I think we've talked about how finders leave bits of themselves in the paths every time they go there. And this feels like it will do that in a much bigger and more permanent way. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, surely, surely it will. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, the fact that it's Snowdrop who is a boon companion from a path, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, and I mean, because that, that's kind of the other cool thing about this, like, from from Avery doing something for a Snowdrop perspective, uh, Snowdrop is kind of of the paths and of an opossum and of Avery. And to sort of do the familiar ritual with Avery, you could sort of see that as, like, her... T- being tied to Avery, like, like you could view it as a bit of a su- weird submissive thing, like Avery claiming back part of herself or whatever. Mm. And so to do it in the paths is kind of acknowledging that that that's as much snowdrop as Avery is. Mm. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's a good point. The thought of reinforcing, not just that, but also reinforcing, like it's more of Avery's. Sorry, of Snowdrop's identity. It's a shared identity, but Snowdrop is from the paths. Yeah. It's interesting to me that it would theoretically help kind of define, hey, this is at least somewhat a more equal relationship than a traditional, you know, I mean, even the word familiar kind of implies subservience, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it, it's, it does feel more respectful of who Snowdrop is. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I can't wait. Like, yeah. What sort of, like, like, even if this just pulls Avery closer to the paths and maybe Snowdrop a bit further out of them. Or probably not if it's in the paths, but it's like, mm. what, what, how will that manif- manifest? Like, you know, probably like quite straightforwardly, Avery will just get like better at doing paths mm. and, and working with Lost because if she's got one as a familiar, then she presumably is better at negotiating with them. Um, so maybe that'll help against the wolf, but like, I'm sure Barbo's got some other wacky ideas of, you know, we'll let her lie a bit or whatever, you know, all those other things people have predicted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we will uh, wait. have to wait and see. Yeah, just just from a story perspective, I feel like it almost has to happen on the train path thing because there's not time for it to happen anywhere yeah, right? else, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Like, oh god, it's gonna be like if she brings fucking Lucy and Verona in there and they ha- hold the clocks so that she can do the ritual. Oh fuck! Oh, it's gonna be mental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so yeah, the patrol group arrives at the goblin apartment and gathers some goblins before setting off again, and they find signs that something is up. Lucy questions the cops. So yeah, Verona still hasn't named this goblin. Uh, I'm going to say Snotwood or Boogerfinger, a good candidate. Yeah. I haven't been able to move past Snot Smear, Mm. which I think is like, you know, something I came up with on day one. So I don't know. Knowing Walbo, he's got something better up his sleeve or something like it's happened enough times in the past that like i just see wild Bo sitting on something way more perfect mm. i'm not going to try and compete with him on this front he seems <laughs> to have a knack for it i quite like how Boogerfinger rolls off the tongue <laughs> yeah and he was trying to stick verona with his Boogerfinger. i mean he does that a lot from what we know <laughs> about him he loves sticking boogers on them fingers what about his beak like Boogabeak. Boogabeak, yeah, maybe. Um, so uh, 
yeah, I mean, the police thing, right? Like, it's so perfect that Lucy was the one to put together the poli- that it might be someone in the police because, like, yeah, obviously to her, Jazz has warned her about the police and it's something that she considers a threat where, obviously, for Verona and Lucy, um, they would be less inclined to think, oh, the police could be seen as a threat. What, what about them? Like, this kind of makes more sense that Lucy is the one that's thinking about the police being threatening more. And rereading this chapter, I noticed how many times this is mentioned <laughs> before she has the epiphany moment, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It comes up so much in her mind. So, of course, she would be the one to put that together. Yeah, yeah. And especially, like, on the other side, of how perfect it is that Lucy was the one to make that connection. The fact that Ken was just completely unable to is tragically perfect. Mm. Uh, like this whole idea of there being something rotten in the police force and Ken as an emblem of society being like, something up here, but I can't, hmm, what could it be? Um, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it, 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 I just instantly, like, did you just instantly believe it? The moment Lucy said it, I was like, oh, fuck, that's it. Like, it has to be. Mm, yeah. I mean, it made so much sense, right? Yeah. And it's funny because in this chapter, it's kind of posited as a theory. But then from next chapter, you're like, immediately, this is going on. This is it. And then it's proven yep. right immediately. So I just <laughs> thought that was great. Like, John immediately kind of seems to be like, that's it. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and wait, there's the added angle as well of this whole outsider police thing. Like they're yes. bringing police from outside Kennet, which was actually mentioned in that newspaper thing way back in the day, I think. Because oh, was it interesting? Yeah, I, and I only remember that because I somebody was talking about the fact that it was actually something that like has really happened in Ontario, like in the last mm. decade or something. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, like so that detail it just stuck in my mind because it tied into real life, and then it's become an actual plot point here, you know, four arcs later. Um, and I love how it's it's starting to play off already on the Kenneteers as police like figures mm. because they've just moved into this town and are now like somewhat in charge of controlling a bunch of others who don't know them, don't like them, don't want them here. Um, and you can sort of compare this to the ones who they, they do like, they do know, and they do like, you know, they get on with a bunch of the others here. Maybe next chapter will prove this somewhat wrong, but, um, like them sort of being fly in practitioner or fly in police practitioners for a lot of the new others, mm. like a very apt comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great comparison. I love that. I, I hadn't thought about that as, at all, but it really tracks. Um, yeah, interesting. I like that. Yeah, because we see, yeah, I guess we'll cover it when we get there, but we see the Kennedys do their first, like, practitionery police work since all the new others moved in next chapter. Um, and I think it says a lot about how they are as enforcers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's the end of the chapter, right? Right. Yeah, that's, uh, so, that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> I, I, it's a, yeah. It's a fun one. Like it's, I I like how because because it feels like we spend this whole chapter with Lucy wondering what her role is, and I feel like we see it at the end of this. Like as she tracks this whatever the fuck, we still don't know what it's going to be thing that likes Carmine energy. 
Um, she's the one who could find danger. Like she, she can spot it. She hears when danger is coming. Like she knows when to be on guard. Um, she's not like quite a scout because there's overlap there with Avery, but yeah, she's the one who knows what to be careful of. Yeah. She just kind of seems to have the wisdom to know when, when things are going to go in a bad direction more than the others seem to. Yeah. I'd say she's the one who knows who to trust, but I don't think any of us. No, it's not that. It's like knows how much to trust and how much not to trust, you know? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's much better. Yeah. Um, so that's the end of that chapter. <laughs> Let's head on to 9.5 from Verona's perspective. Um, the trio arrive at Matthew and Elizabeth, and I was about to say Elizabeth, <laughs> Matthew and Edith's house to request help. Uh, Ver- that's the shocking, the shocking, the shocking twist drama twist, that's about yes, to come she's up. She's changed Matthew her name. And Liz's. <laughs> um, Verona's excited, but Lucy immediately gets up her hackles. I love how this is actually the second Verona chapter in a row that has opened with like awkward vibes at Matthew and Edith's house during a meeting. Um, <laughs> this poor girl just wants cool monster friends, but everyone is so mean and doesn't like her for some reason. Mm. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Wabo set up this cliffhanger last chapter and refuses to pay it off until the very end of this chapter, which is just <laughs> mean. We'll talk about that obviously when we get to it though. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, last chapter was like a gr- a group of cliffhangers because it was like we had this other. We get the reveal that it's probably the police, and we're going to have to go and fight there, and and then they drop the extra cliffhanger of Lucy overheard something, and mm. then yeah, we start this one. It's just like oh, that that most juicy one. We're packing that away for now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a great use of like switching POVs for the story as well because there's a reason why Lucy can't tell us. So, like, it didn't feel cheap that Wabo was withholding this information for a whole chapter. Yeah, no, I think it it made a lot of sense, right? Like, yeah. there, it's important enough that Lucy needs to be concerned about being overheard. Um, yeah. I think uh, it works as well that we're anxious to hear what it is being in Verona's head because she clearly is so... She's so bad at not just getting instant gratification on things like that, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. So yeah, uh, we uh, we get an entrance finally from Crookie Rookie, uh, making her entrance, telling the Kennetiers, "Hey, you're not invited to this meeting," and having a very <laughs> quick interaction with them. Oh man, it, hasn't she already just proven that she's as cool as you hoped she would be? Mm. Yeah. Um, She's great, right? Um, it's weird though. Like she interrupts, hears their question, and then like immediately bails. Uh, effectively, <laughs> the impression that I got from it, at least, was as soon as she's kind of reassured that they have a valid reason for being here, she just she doesn't see any need to like interact with them any more than is absolutely necessary, and just leaves. Yeah, and and you know, part of me was like, oh, is that what she's trying to do though? Because wasn't there that whole thing about how she sent Alpi? Um, yeah to because she can't talk to them directly so she needs to you know so is she just putting on a face here yeah um but i think liz also told us in that chapter that she's not like a tricksty trickster person she's a tactician yeah so i'm more inclined to maybe just take her abruptness at face value and maybe that's just uh, so my positive spin on how she can not hate the Kennedys but still be like this is maybe that's just her she's just like you know, like Jess Kasabian was when we first met her. Like she just 
she's not a friendly person. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to get a solid bead on on old Rook, huh? Like, is yeah. she just being a little prickly? Is she intentionally kind of keeping arm's length? Is is everything we've heard about her so far true, or is she going to actually end up being the Kennedy's best friend? Who knows? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's I I I can't get a bead on Rook. No, no, me either. Um, her her de- like, well, I think that's by design. Um, because we've we've heard like all these different things about her, and she is intentionally keeping a distance. Mm. Um, her description is so cool, though. Uh, like physically, like her look. Like I, I usually move move into speed run or so speed read mode a bit when character descriptions come up. Mm. Um, I'll admit, like I I tend to yeah, glaze over the the second half, but like Crooks just had I was reading every fucking word. Um, it, like she has all these fucking compartments in her cloak and stuff, and it, it was funny how like important their like the imagery seemed to be. Like there was so much imagery associating her with like Oni in her look. Like she's she's covered in like a uh, like box and cage sort of symbolism, which seems to be tied to Oni. Um, she's got that like stick that you know, has sort of been painted so many times over that it's not really itself anymore, mm-hmm. which, you know, feels important for someone who changes who other people are and who wears masks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's it's just funny how, you know, Oni said they're going to sort of be the opposite of the practice, but it feels like she's leaning into these established patterns and imagery of, of what Oni are a lot. Yeah. Which in and of itself feels like a trap, right? Like, shouldn't she not be doing that isn't that the opposite of what she should be doing so why is she doing that i don't know yeah it's it's just a bit of a testament i think to how if you're trying to be the opposite of the system Mm. uh that sort of means you're still defining yourself by it in some of these ways Mm. yeah yeah um hmm. so rook goes inside she warns matthew and edith that the trio is here and then the trio relays john mess john's message uh, that they'll need some support they grab Jabba, Montague, and a few more gobos to round out the group. Yeah. Can we talk about Monty? Like, he's so cool. Mm. I mean, obviously, we see a bit of action later, but, like, that whole thing he does, like the one ring from Lord of the Rings, mm. where as you carry him around, he corrupts you slowly. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I'm so glad Montague was in this chapter, because he's wild. <laughs> he is good, isn't he? He's so weird. Um, and I still don't feel like I have a solid picture of how he works, but he seems to be very useful. He effectively seems to be able to just kind of weasel his way into any situation and be be useful. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the weird thing is, he's kind of like a sweetheart. Like I remember, he was the one where Matt mentioned in his original email, Montague was someone who they couldn't get on board until it was like he realized he could hang out with like Edith and Tashlit and stuff. Like he, yep. he was more concerned with who he could connect with. Yeah. So he just so seems weird. like a n- nice person. Like, <laughs> and he helped them at the end, get the, 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 uh, like sheet on Peyton and stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, so he fucking seemed very, terrifying. Yeah. He seems He's, very friendly. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to touch on something I noticed here, which is, is Jabba's nonsense actually like semi-intelligible? The the mm. most obvious example of this is here he mentions they're talking about, oh, we need to bring some goblins, and Jabba says Bista, and then the goblins kind of 
translate or interpret that as meaning biscuit, one of the goblins who should should kind of get involved, which is kind of like the I would call it like the toddler speak version of biscuit, right? That's how a, a a child might say biscuit when they are still learning how to speak. And and there are a few moments that feel like that, although it's harder to track when you don't get explicit confirmation of what he's gonna say, what he's actually meaning. Um is it is that right? Did you get that impression or was it just a coincidence? I, I had a different but similar thing i so i was looking up because I, I i recognized a few of the words he says later in the chapter as like words from other languages mm. um but they're all kind of relevant so for instance bista uh is like swedish or norwegian for like to help or to support oh and when he says it is right after they're like oh we need to get jabba to help john and then jabba's just like bista so i think i think what's kind of happening is he it's like he tries to say some simple things but like the language of what he's saying around yeah of each word actually it's not even like a whole phrase it's like every word gets put in like a random language and some of them were quite hard to translate because like walbo sort of phoneticized them because you know we're hearing it from verona's perspective she doesn't speak these languages um but i think i think he's mostly just saying kind of relevant simple things but just in a random language. Interesting. All right. I like that theory. Let's see if we can uh, play it out over the next few times we uh, we see Jabba. Well, what this means is people need to fucking try and translate everything he says so we can, like, you know, see any clues while those le- leaving out. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love this moment when Ken gets them a shortcut, asking them to follow the yellow line. And then a yellow line just kind of is there and could have always been there. <laughs> but obviously Ken has just kind of made it in response. And it's just so Ken is just so mechanically interesting. Like, yeah, I love this so much. I love exploring more of what he is and what he can do. And I think that's going to continue to be a well of incredibly interesting dynamics going forward. Yeah. Like, cause when he was introduced, I almost entirely just focused on what he would say about Kennet as a place. Yeah. It it didn't occur to me to like think about, yeah, what he could do. What he could do and the in more Kennet, we, yeah. The more we see it, the more I'm like, oh, oh like, because it keeps getting called like city ma- magic or shamanism yes. or something. Yeah. And like, that got touched on in the Blue Heron Institute and stuff, but like, I, I didn't really get it. And I was like, I don't see why you'd want to be that necessarily. It's like, now I get it. Like, having Ken on side is fucking great. Yeah. I, I I don't think it's the most like powerful magic, but it actually seems really useful in the modern day mm. and age. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so uh, they arrive at the police station and they start to break in. Montague disables the security systems while Jabba incapacitates any innocents that they pass by. They get into the bullpen and start looking around for the intruders. <laughs> yeah, and I, I touched on this already a bit with Montague, but it's really cool to see see all of our new others in action like and mm. especially i feel like the motley crew that we have t- here today are the ones that i felt like i didn't really understand how they would work like the most like you know like seeing jabba and monty and how they're used like this and, and what they can do is just really cool and, and also scary yeah i was um i was very thrilled to see how these how these two would work specifically because they're two that we have 
learned enough about to be very, very intrigued by, but haven't actually seen in action until now. And they're both so interesting. I We've talked about Montague a bit already. I found Jabba so compelling. Like, he kind of gave me almost Pokemon vibes of, like, being having this kind of childish energy, says his own name a few times, has these <laughs> attacks that do, like, psychic manipulation. I don't know. I just found him so much fun. And a great addition to the group, both, like, mechanically for the Kenneteers having access to him, but also just kind of, like, Energy-wise, I found him so enjoyable. See, I just found him fucking terrifying. Mm. And I mean, I suppose there's a lot of Pokemon war that is also terrifying. Oh, so yeah. I'm not going to fight the Pokemon thing. But, um, like, this way he, like, turns joy and cheer into something terrifying, I just find inherently, ter- like, creepy, and I don't want him around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do want him around. I want him in a lot of, more of the story, but I'm also, like, I, I don't know. I didn't like having the the Kenneteers hang out with him because it was like, wait, wait, there's that guy who he made like pee his pants and then he was like <laughs> lying in the puddle or whatever. Yeah, some stuff that definitely felt a bit, um, a bit much, like a bit abusive <laughs> to the innocents. I would say. Yeah, and and because from Jabba's intro in like the new others document, we found out that what sort of happens is, um, to even this out all these people will have like a bit of a depressive phase to follow it on. Yeah. So you get like this delirious cheer and we've hit everyone in this police officer with this delirious cheer for a while. And it's like, okay, now they're all maybe going to be like quite intensely depressed for two weeks. Like, yeah, that's not what you want from both the criminal and police side of a town. Yep. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem great, does it? I mean, I know everything has drawbacks in this world, and obviously it was kind of necessary to do this. But, you know, we talked about when we first found out about Jabba, we and uh, Matthew called out that this would be a bit worrying to uh, to necess- some possibly give the, the Kennet others more more power than they should have over the innocence of Kennet. And, and this is just like seeing, yeah, that's definitely the case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I wonder if we're going to address what the fallout is of using him here tonight. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we will have to see. Um, so, yeah, the group starts uh, weeding out the others and the fight begins. Uh, the Kennedys try to negotiate, but it's clear that these others are too, tra- too traumatized by their experiences to be trusting. Yeah, and, and it's great. Like, th- this is sort of a massive sequence for the, in terms of, like, how much of the chapter it takes up. Um, and it's so great being in Verona's head for stuff like this. Like, not just because she's a problem solver, but mm. I love how she manages to fit in these little moments where, like, there's one bit where she freaks out about Lucy getting hurt because then that would, like, affect Lucy, but also Jazz. And they're, like, two of the only people she likes. Um, and she immediately sort of goes from these thoughts to, like, springing into action and interrogating um, one of the others. Uh, it's just really fun. Uh yeah, I just I just always love being in her head for stuff like this. Like as we're trying to piece together who these others are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It it is great to 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 explore stuff through this scene. Like this is such a fun, intense fight scene. The fact that one of the others we're fighting can move between different bodies is also just such a great kind of way to make sure that this fight scene stays kind of fresh and tense. Like, uh, mm. you know, Verona is constantly having to look around and be like, okay, who is it now? Who could it be now? Um, 
Plus, obviously, while they're fighting, they're, as you mentioned, kind of figuring out the dynamics of these new others. And that also leads to a very fun uh, vibe, right? Where it's kind of like a puzzle mixed with an action scene. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a really cool implementation of the sort of like possession enemy, like, like you know, like the thing. Yeah. Um, or sort among of, us sort of vibe. For, for, modern, uh, for modern readers. But yeah, like, I mean, I, I think what also elevates it is like, the fact that there are all these normal people here and they're like laughing in Jabba's creepy way. Um, and then you've got like the goblins tipping shit over in the background, like on top of Verona being tense and trying to have to piece together stuff. It's an environment that is not really conducive for you doing that because mm. there's so much shit going on. So like so many times Verona would be like, there was a crash behind her and I'd start to freak out. And like, like, oh shit. Around and yeah. It's just like a, a goblin pushed some shit over for no reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, goblins are too chaotic to be in such a high tense situation. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, or she'd be like, you know, oh, you know, she looked at this person and they were doing some crazy shit, and it's like, oh, but that's just Jabba doing. Like, mm. you're not only on the edge of your seat because of the tension, but there's so many, there's so much shit to track, and you, uh, I, I thought Wildbo did a great job of getting me in that headspace. Yeah, for sure, I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, so, should we run through the, the three others that we see here? I mean, yep. they this is kind of revealed over time, but we should um, just dive into it now, I think. First off, there's our parasite other, who inhabits a body, entering through the wrist, ex- exiting through the wrist as well, possibly, uh, and then puppets it, but kind of has an autonomous body they can move around outside of the things they're parasiting as well. It's kind of small, like, leech or jellyfish-like thing. Yeah, that's also very, very skinny outside of the site. Yeah, it, it felt like wh- how Matthew described the girl by candlelight when he first found it, like mm. these these scraps of symbolism that have sort of knotted together to form a complex spirit. Mm. Um, like you can sort of see the girl by candlelight being sort of somewhat similar groups of things before Matthew, like you know, sort of gave her a boost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, and interesting, I didn't think of the connection between the parasite and the girl by candlelight, but that's another thing that we might touch on in a little bit. Um, then, yeah, there's McKay, who almost seemed to be like, uh, kind of, I don't know, almost gave like a Todd Barney kind of vibe of like latching to somebody and feeding off of their uh, kind of descent into rock bottom slash climbing back out of that rock bottom. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I made a connection with the Todd Barney thing. And then Biscuit, the goblin, also seems to have a mm. weird reaction shot that is kind of like making that connection as well, which I thought was fun. I did the same thing. I was sort of like, it's maybe Todd or Barney-ish. And then Biscuit is like looking on like in awe. And I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, but this, like, again, this is sort of where we're really getting into this stuff. Like, this is a really cursed kind of doppelganger because he needs to drag someone down to survive. Mm-hmm. So you can really sort of feel for how he just refuses to trust anyone here. Cause like what, yeah, like I think he knows, like he's someone he's going to have to do terrible things to keep living. So he knows he can't sort of function in a society like that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what he's saying. I mean, we've had the thought about ghouls and how they can theoretically eat on dead flesh and that's not as good for them, but it's manageable, you know? Maybe there's a version yeah. of that for McKay as well, but he's just not willing to divulge that at this point. Someone, I don't know that we fair. can necessarily trust him telling the whole truth around things like this, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, that's fair. 
I mean, yeah, maybe. Well, so, I, I mean, we're presumably going to get some info from him, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's. Yeah, I don't know. I I still sort of trust it. Um, yeah, but yeah, maybe there's like another idea we haven't. I thought I of trust that he feels backed into a corner at the very least. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I I yeah, I, I mean, the thing that jumps out to me with something like this, and like we're talking about with Dogs of War before, is you've got someone like Crooked Rook who can seemingly take bits out of others and put other parts in mm-hmm. and i suppose yeah it brings up the whole ethics of that again like what if crooked rook can change this guy into something better is that yeah can she do it should she do yeah, it yeah is that it that seems like a pretty good solution except for the fact that maybe it's a bit of a, a i don't know like a, a bit of a violation i guess yeah but i mean like to pull it into the real world like if you have like a psychopath like somebody like with like you know there's a certain level of that which is like a a, like a brain condition where there's like a part of their brain that hasn't developed properly Mm. and if we could like give them medication to force them to grow that part of their brain and learn to empathize should we like i i feel like a lot of people might say yes Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um and then yeah, the third of the others is the least defined um a blonde-haired man who I don't know, we're not really quite sure what he is. He seems to be in theme with the others, so possibly like a doppelganger, possibly even Liz in an alternate form, which is probably <laughs> a stretch, but uh yeah, we don't really know what he is. He seems to be the leader of this little group, but uh, possibly a doppelganger. Yeah. Uh, Verona compares the meat it's inside of him to Edith. Right. Yeah. Um. So I'm guessing, like, I, I, the shtick I've sort of lent into for this group is like possession. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it's like I wonder if he's some sort of elemental or got again another girl by candle like complex spirity sort of thing. Yeah. That's just found a body to live in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he seems like what we learn sort of later is that he seems like obsessed with getting kids like Peyton and dragging them down and like making them yeah. do petty crime. So like, I wonder if he's some sort of peer pressure spirit or something. <laughs> spirit of peer pressure. Yeah, maybe. Um, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, they, they, they obviously have a theme that is about like possession and kind of like taking over other people or other people's lives or whatever. Um, yeah. And McKay mentions that their type of other is always the first to be discarded in kind of tense situations, first to be thrown away, which is interesting. And it makes sense. I mean, like he explains it as people being squeamish of the idea of being like taken over, which hundred percent is true. But we know we have Liz in this group of Kenneth others who is kind of in a similar space. We know that we have Edith who is in a similar space. I guess it's just interesting to me. We've already touched on the ghouls. It's interesting to me that this is something that McKay calls out explicitly. But we've seen that in the group of Kenneth others, there are others that are kind of not necessarily 100% within this group. Edith may be the most close, but like similar, very similar. Um, should they be worried about that? Is that is that potentially a motivation for the Carmine murder? Is that important? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it just kind of felt important to point out and keep an eye on, you know? Yeah, I... I'd push back on saying someone like Liz is similar to these guys in that Liz doesn't actively have to take from people to 
stay who she is. Yeah. Unless I've forgotten part of her shtick. Um, it, like Jabba would almost be the one to me where it's sort of like, I think everyone who's been brought into Kenneth and everyone who was here before can seemingly survive without hurting people. Um, except maybe Jabba. Mm. Um, like maybe Jabba's the one who should be worried. Maybe. Uh, although he doesn't affect others. So yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, like the hungry choir felt like the other example of this. Um, like Yolda was the first one to get got, uh, from the original Canada others. Yeah, true. So maybe, maybe McKay is right. This is very true. Yeah. Although again, was stopping Yolda a bad thing? Well, she hasn't been fully I mean, stopped it, actually. Yeah, it clearly wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, you're right. I, there could be something to this, like this idea of, yeah, who who should be worried about their position. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, but yeah, like these others here, McKay especially, come across as not monstrous at all. Like they've had a lot of bad experiences with others and practitioners to the point that they seem pretty desperate. Uh, not evil, just desperate. And that's what's causing them to act the way they are, which is obviously uh, kind of... Uh, an extension of some of the themes we were talking about with the relationships between practitioners and others and others and other others. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's just interesting that there there's an attempt to, to negotiate with them and it just fails because they've just, they're too far. They've just, I guess they've been hurt too much to, to, to be willing to trust. And so the only response is they have to, McKay has to be bound, which is obviously a, a bad scenario. Yeah, and, and we'll get to that um, in a sec, but um, there's arguably still room for this blonde guy who left, the one who just, like, walks out. Yeah. He he could be a piece of shit. Um, there's nothing to suggest that he yeah, is. very true. Well, there's nothing to suggest he isn't. Um, yeah, I don't know. I got kind of shithead vibes from him, but, like, yeah, someone like McKay, he seems like a nice person, but he's cursed with this existence where he needs to drag people down to survive yeah um and yeah so it's totally understandable that he just can't trust the others yeah um, but the, the the last thing i wanted to pull out from this sort of fight scene is uh it's like lucy puts the watch on that she chose last chapter and that protects her from the the pencil possessive thing because it needs to be able to put a watch on her to possess her mm-hmm so that's cool. Like that's a neat little yeah. sort of reward for Lucy for not picking another knife. <laughs> Go Lucy. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, the blonde man and the parasite escape, although perhaps the parasite has escaped by hitching a ride with somebody. <gasps> we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I feel like they would have noticed, but you never know. Anyway, they escape. <laughs> Lucy binds McKay and they turn McKay over to Matthew's custody for questioning to continue yeah. the policeman theme. Yep. Like, I mean, that's what's so great about this binding is, I, like, obviously the imagery is potent of Lucy being the one to bind this guy who's impersonating a police officer. Um, but I just love how she handles it so much. Like, she, every step of the way, she tries to get him to cooperate and to not have to follow through with it. Like, she, she, we, I, we've talked about this since there was a how to bind extra material, like, arcs and arcs ago. Is she, She's treating this with the weight that it feels like it should have. Yes, 100%. She, she doesn't want to him... do it. She tries to give yeah. him an out and he refuses to take it. Yeah, well, and there's even that point where she's like, can you tell us about your compatriots? And he's like, you're going to have to force me to do it. And I know that you're going to hate that. And 
Lucy actually doesn't press it right then and there. She's like, oh, whatever. Like, I mean, she's go, go with those. McKay words. is right. Yeah. Like, and I just, I, yeah, I love how this is handled so much because it sort of really reinforces how good the justice that these three are doling out is. Yeah. Also, yeah. Uh, while Lucy's doing that, uh, Verona is doing all the cleaning up, which I like uh, because that's not normally her thing. Um, it turns out that, you know, you can do cleaning up and it's not the end of the world, Verona. <laughs> I mean, when you're cleaning up, not after your dad, I guess. <laughs> no, it turns out her dad was just right. She's just, she just needs to do these chores. Yeah, and she just needs bad. to get some, you know, self-respect and autonomy and do some, <laughs> some chores. God. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, the Kenneteers uh, head off and have their sleepover. Waking up in the middle of the night to discuss what Lucy overheard. Yeah, and I love that this happens during Monty Hour. Because mm. it's, uh, again, like that scene with Lucy right at the start of 9.4. This is such a visual scene. Like, in between Lucy delivering lines on what she heard, we cut to, like, you know, this red sky is roaring and screaming and twisting. Mm. And... It's like not only adding this sort of insane ambience, like you're picturing in your head this fucking red roaring sky as Lucy tells us this terrible information, but also that's all happening because of the local others. So it's like as we're getting this drop about how untrustworthy they are, all this shit's happening that's kind of like showing how powerful they are in some ways. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, 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 yeah, you're right. It adds this vibe of like, I don't know the barrier as this ominous force and we'll get into that a little bit more mm. i guess as we go because uh, you know the barrier is protective to kennet and the kenneteers mostly but seeing it in its most ominous state is a great backdrop to what we're about to get into yeah yeah exactly um yeah so uh a quick summary for what lucy overheard one the Charles was used intentionally to lie to them. The barrier can be used to theoretically disable practitioning. Um, or at least um, like heavily... Heavily dampen it, yeah. Dampen it, yeah. Uh, this is relevant because a woman's voice, who is probably Edith, but possibly Liz or Marissica, uh, mentioned that the Kennedys wouldn't be around for long. They would be gotten rid of or dealt with, e.g. killed, yep. taken down, who knows. I don't think killed. Because they do say that thanks to their oath, they have to live long, happy lives. Well, yes, but, it's a... but they would be gotten rid of or not a problem. You know, who, who knows? What yeah, I mean. we're taking them out as practitioners. Yes. Yeah. Um, and nobody uh, relevant, nobody at all, speaks up about this. Yes. Uh, so to touch on each of those, like uh, Lucy actually says that there were functions, like plural, that Charles didn't mention. So there could also even be other things. Mm. Um, like it, it could just be. I might just be latching onto a single letter there that and giving it more weight than it's meant to have. But there might be other weird shit that the barrier can do. Mm. Um, but I mean, what's interesting is like Edith is a complex spirit, right? Or like with a girl by candlelight is, and like spirits are, uh, seem to be tied into a lot of what a lot of the others are and what they do. Yeah. So. How does affecting them and dampening them in this way affect the others? Yeah. Is my question. Um, and I, I almost want to go back and see if there were any noticeable differences in how some of the others acted or behaved 
fault or what they did like after the after Sharon fucked up the the boundary. Yeah. Uh yeah. Good question. Did that is there Yeah, I don't know. You're right. I wonder. Cuz I mean they kind of had that part of it on at full power um like during the start of the story cuz the Kennedys were able to practice. But um you know, was it operating on some low level or something? Mm, I wonder did we see, yeah, any major change in Edith as an example? Has yeah. Edith become a bit more unhinged since the barrier went down or, or whatever? I don't know. Or less unhinged. Yeah, good point. But no, if you, if you stick like Monty in this and like use it to dampen all spirits or whatever and affect the practice, yeah. yeah. How will that affect the others? That's going to be hugely important. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's rough, right? Like all this stuff coming up is pretty rough. It's starting to look like this isn't just going to be a murder mystery, but the Kennedys are going to be effectively against everyone, almost everyone in Kennet. Maybe not John as the only person who, you know, who 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 seems to be fully on the up and up. Uh yeah. Like I think we always knew there was going to be some conflict between the trio and the culprits, but I still kind of expect that to be a two sides thing or a minority. Yeah. Um, Should we touch on, because people have been talking about like, who was at the meeting? Who wasn't at the meeting? What could this have meant? Yeah. Should we just run through that? Notes. Yeah. So I did, on my second read through, I went through it. I, I got the list of all the others in Kennet and then like ticked them off uh, when they were confirmed at the meeting or not at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so like some of the highlights of people who were there and apparently didn't speak up is like Tashlit, Although she can't speak, so she probably yeah. has to pass. Um, Guillaume was there, uh, which is kind of heartbreaking. Ken is there. Uh, Alpi is almost assuredly there. Um, and then obviously Matthew and Edith uh, were, are there. This is a bit unorthodox. I, I want to pull out my pale prediction from this week, Elliot. Okay. My pale prediction from this week is from I'm Measily Impressed. And it's something that I think a lot of people have been speculating about, but I'm easily impressed was first to predict and summed it up saying crooked rook messed with Lucy's implement and changed what she was overhearing in order to make the Ken and others seem more hostile slash suspicious. Uh, I've seen, I've seen other people talking about that. Like yeah. A lot of thoughts around like, not necessarily crooked rook, but just like, what is something is, is it not what we are ex- seeming to be? Is it something other than what it seems to be? Because like Tashlet being there, it's crazy to me. Tash is so clearly not a villain. Like, and is so clearly aligned with at least Verona, if not the the entirety of the Kenneteers. Like, it seems weird to me that Tash would be there and would be chill. I mean, obviously she, she can't speak, so she wouldn't have spoken up there, but the fact just being in that room and being chill with that kind of discussion just seems off to me, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, I In a discussion on this, I, I also posited what if, like, Crooked Rook is being sneaky about what parts she helped Lucy hear and what parts she didn't. Mm. Like, what if there was discussion and answering after this and she just blocked that part? True, yeah. Um, Because, yeah, like, like some of the people who aren't confirmed but, like, are probably there is, like, Toad Swallow, um, like, you know, Cherry Pop, Marissica, like, it's not said that they're there, but you kind of assume they are, and it's just like, yeah, it's it's crazy that none of them would have something to say on that. Mm. 
yeah like this is what this is definitely like it feels like we're not that far away from heading into the final confrontation stuff now like this is as toad swallow said right back in 5.d people are starting to draw the battle lines and they're going to be taking sides soon Mm. yeah yeah and honestly i i kind of hope they take the the kennedy's practicing away for Mm. some of it because i really like the idea of for at least part of an upcoming conflict or the final one if the kennedy's can't practice it it's like superhero shows do this fairly often right like the hero will will lose their power for an episode and then you kind of get to explore the part of them that is a hero that is beyond their powers Mm. um and what's really fun about the kennedy's is for them it that is the connections they and the bridges that they build Mm. so it's like even without their ability to practice they have all these other tools they can sort of bring in to help them get a victory like i just think that would be a really fun part of it if yeah, when they get their powers taken away from them, that is when people like Tashlet step up to defend them. Yeah, I don't know. We will have to see. Um, but I do love that idea. I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about how the real strength of the Kennedys isn't their practice because that it comes from Kennet anyway, but their ability to connect, to empathize. Yeah. Right. Um, and I suppose bringing in other practitioners from outside wouldn't help at that point, but like maybe that's where Clem comes in. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, should we touch on the fact that it, it's pointed out by Lucy that Charles was intentionally used to the group could be lied to slash misled. I mean, obviously we've known that Charles could lie for a while, but is there anything else that that could have been done with? I don't know. Does anyone, <laughs> if anyone wants to go back through and get any of those and pull them out, let me know. Although having said that, I feel like Wildbo doesn't really like outright lying, so it would probably be half-truths or white lies, which could have been done from any of the others anyway, just by omitting things and stuff like that. Yeah, my yeah, my thinking is maybe he was used so much early on to sort of form a trust in what he could, what he was saying because yeah. a lot of what he said early on has sort of been proven right. Yeah. Um. So maybe that's it. Although I don't know how good a plan that is, considering he's got all this bad karma that makes everyone hate him. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just it, what it really says is that Charles is somewhat complicit. Mm. Uh. In helping the others hurt the Kenneteers, which is actually a bit surprising to me. Um, I would have thought he was better than that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's It can't be as damning as it seems to be from this chapter, though. I, I refuse to believe that, you know, 80% of the Kennet others at least are against um, our Kenneteers so actively. Yeah, or I... How many of them are still going to feel that way when the Carmine fur shit goes down, right? Oh, like, if that's what resolves it, it's the fact that they get on board just because of the Carmine fur stuff. I'm like, yeah. ooh, that, that won't be great. That, that's just I, of need. I don't know. I'm willing to give the new others a bit more leeway in that regard because we've talked so much about how they don't have that inherent trust in their new police force. It's yeah. true. Um, but like for someone like Marissica, who was... Like if Marissica was happy to sit in here and let this go along, and then only steps up when the first come up, then I'd be like, "Well, fuck you!" Like, you know, because you're not doing it for the Kennedys, you're doing it to stop the Carmine stuff. I mean, Mm. Marissica might be a bad example because I'm pretty sure she's one of the culprits or she's got some bullshit going on. But you know what I mean? Like, Mm. for the old others, I'm absolutely on your side. Of if if they're happy to let this go until the Carmine furs come into it, then that's not a good look. 
Mm. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> yep. Um, and that's the end of the chapters, huh? Yeah. Oh, fuck, what a pair. What a pair of chapters, I know. God, everything's really popping off and coming to a head, and I'm excited to see how it resolves, but terrified at the same time. <laughs> yep. Um, well, because oh, something we, we haven't even touched on, I don't think, but like one of the things John says is he's basically going to die unless they can yeah, find Unless the they furs. can save his life. Well, yeah, but they to do that, they have to find the furs like before the the whole thing kickstarts and i don't think it's that far away no so yeah yeah, we don't have that much time yep um yeah no we definitely don't um i mean yeah we'll we'll have to see it's still even as the pieces are being put in their final positions for this kind of you know denouement i don't i i still just have no idea how it's all gonna go down (laughs) yeah yeah I, i and i love that yeah um should should we dive into our pale predictions? You've already heard mine. Yes. Mine was from uh, I'm measly impressed. Do you have one this week? Yeah. Uh and I, I pulled out mine first. Oh, but okay. uh, it's also from I'm easily impressed. Oh wow. Well, well played, uh, I'm easily impressed. Two in yeah, one week. This one's, this one's a bit of an old one that I dug up from a few weeks ago when we got a bunch of really good ones. But um I'm I'm easily impressed. Uh suggests that Melissa might start to become a witch hunter. Um because basically witch hunters were mentioned a bunch of times, uh, especially in the lead up to returning to Kennet as people were, uh, some characters, I think it was Liz or something said that witch hunters would probably show up. Um, and in the story, witch hunters have been described as aware with a few tricks and Melissa is becoming aware and she's managed to start doing a few basic spells. So, uh, I'm easily impressed posits that if some witch hunters came to town and they found her, it'd be very easy for them to sort of sell hey magic is real and so are monsters and you're special and you can help us fight them um and that might sort of give melissa some of the purpose that she's been missing mm. and she has been a bit of an antagonist yeah uh in many ways for a lot of this well yeah since she broke her leg so the idea that like she'd literally become an anti-witch person against our three witches is, is kind of fun mm. yeah yeah um I think so. I I, th- I like this one too. I it feels like it's too much of a new plot thread for me to feel like it's going to pay off before the end of this story, though. That's my yeah. thought about it. But I do really like it thematically. I think it works quite well. It feels like all of the shit is too close to hitting the fan for this to to be realized at this point. Like I think I think uh, I'm easily impressed. Made this back in like nine point one, mm. which it definitely felt very plausible back then. Now I'm like I like a lot of it. And Melissa is something we still theoretically have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, good prediction. Good work. I'm easily impressed for getting the first two-in-one award. Um, well, that's the end of our show, folks. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Uh, you can comment on the episode in the discussion thread down below. Yes. Uh, while you're looking for things to write, why not write us a review on your podcatcher of choice, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever. It helps get the word out about the show, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we do other shows too. Uh, so if you head to tookmedia.com, that's where they're all listed. Uh, I mean, the one that I'm most excited about these days is Pace. Pace, Pace, Pace. Um, yeah. Just released the third episode. I also just finished editing the fifth episode. Things are getting really exciting in this story, y'all. So uh, <laughs> I'm keen to have everyone checking it out. Yeah. I'm 
very much enjoying it as a player and also like as a listener. Like Ruben's done a really good job editing. This hey, thanks, stuff, so, thanks, Elliot. Uh, yeah, like check it out. Um, yeah, uh, if you want to check out more of the shows on the Doof Media Network, you can head to doofmedia.com where you can find all the great shows on the Doof Media Network. From there, you can also find a link to the Patreon where you can become a supporter of the Doof Media Network and get access to a whole bunch of cool perks. Check those out at patreon.com slash doofmedia. Yep, and don't forget to head to patreon.com forward slash wildbow or uh, he'll he'll be forced to call in external writers to replace your local writer. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get all these writers and they're writing stuff we don't know about. Yeah. Um, yeah.